The Interchange is brought to you by the Yale Program in Financing and Deploying Clean Energy. Through this online program, Yale University is training working professionals in the clean energy sector, accelerating the deployment of clean energy worldwide, and mitigating climate change. To connect with Yale expertise, grow your professional network, and deepen your impact, visit yalecleanenergy.info interchange and apply before March 13th, 2022. I've been on the other side of the table looking at geothermal and scratching my head and saying, yeah, I get it, but why would you do this, right? If I can do an oil and gas development and be a lot more profitable with less risk, why would I ever do geothermal? And the answer can only be because we have to decarbonize. This is The Interchange, Recharged. I'm David Ban Miller, your host. Welcome. There's no shortage of companies delivering groundbreaking technology in the clean energy transition. In today's episode, we take a look at an existing energy source that is often overlooked. Geothermal energy is one of the oldest sources of energy and has been utilized for generations in a range of different forms. As of 2022, the world had tapped into less than 10% of what geothermal energy has to offer. There's huge potential there, and with such a small carbon footprint, it's a real source of interest. Today's guest is Carlos Araki, CEO of Quaze Energy. Quaze is currently developing systems to access the massive amounts of untapped energy below our feet faster, deeper, and more consciously. With their groundbreaking millimeter drilling technology, Quaze Energy is prepared to power the modern world with sustainability and efficiency in mind. Carlos is also co-founder of Quaze Energy and received his BS and Master's from MIT in Mechanical Engineering. He also spent 17 years at Schlumberger and also as Technical Director for The Engine, MIT's groundbreaking fund and platform to commercialize world-changing technologies. Carlos, welcome to the show. David, thank you. Glad to be here. So why don't you start by uh, telling us a little bit about Quaze Energy, how it started, what type of technology that you guys are working on? So Quaze Energy is born out of research at the MIT Plasma Science Fusion Center. It goes back to 2006 when MIT led a study sponsored by the Department of Energy looking at geothermal and the role it could play for clean energy and the energy transition. Ten years of work, very much laying out all the scientific basis for what would become Quaze, took place in those labs from 2007 to 2017. All of that was funded by the Department of Energy and, and internally by MIT. And in 2017, I, I came across the idea as an investor. I used to work for an investment fund from MIT, the engine. This was fascinating, you know, coming from oil and gas background. This was just, it checked all the boxes for impact and, and very, very hard to do. So, so it caught me and I, and I started the company with my co-founder, Matt Hood. The idea for the, for the company really is to unlock geothermal at the terawatt scale. I think that's the best way to put it. Geothermal hardly plays a role in today's energy transition pathways, but uh, geothermal is the most abundant clean energy source on earth by far. It's, you know, the amount of thermal energy in the earth is much greater than all of the fossil energy, all of the nuclear energy, and all of the renewables. So why are we not looking at, ge- at geothermal, right? And the answer is that it's just hard. We need a technological breakthrough to drill deeper and to unlock this energy source. And that's what I call Quaze. Quaze is the company that seeks to unlock geothermal at the terawatt scale, which is precisely what the energy transition is about. It it is a terawatt problem. And so what technology does Quaze, what are they working on to help further the development of these geothermal projects? So geothermal today exists in places where it's easy to tap into that energy source with conventional technologies, right? A lot of these technologies come from oil and gas, technologies to drill uh, below the surface, technology to, to produce these fluids. We're borrowing all of that from oil and gas in the geothermal industry. But everybody realizes that if you could go deeper and hotter, uh, it just gets better and better and better. And it gets better for two reasons. The first one is it gets more powerful. So the economics improve potentially very significantly. And two, it becomes deployable in more places. You know, in theory, it doesn't matter where you are in the world. If you can drill deep enough, and we're talking about three to 12 miles, you have access to infinite energy. So Quaze addresses that problem first and foremost. How do we drill deeper, faster, hotter, 
than ever before possible. And the, the company, most of the people in the company are from the oil and gas industry. So we understand drilling quite well. Uh, we're not naive to the challenges of drilling and, and, and the challenges that it poses. And Quase basically comes up with a radical new way to drill in the basement. Geologically speaking, there's the sedimentary basins, which is above. That's where oil and gas is. That's where water, for the most part, our water and aquifers are. And then there's the basement, which is below the sedimentary overburden. The basement is where the high-grade geothermal is. So we need to get to the basement, and we need to drill in the basement to tap temperatures in the 300 to 500 degrees Celsius. That's about 600 to 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. The big idea behind the technology is, number one, let's not reinvent oil and gas drilling. That's pretty mature technology, right? So let's use that to get to the basement. That's important. We're going to come with a normal conventional drilling rig, and we're going to drill all the way to the basement. Once you're in the basement, we're going to switch to millimeter wave drilling, and millimeter wave drilling is going to give us a way to drill for miles in the basement at rates that will make it economically viable. There's a few things that go on in the basement that don't go on in the subsurface, and that's why we can do millimeter wave drilling. So it's important to split that process into two steps because the physics are different, and it opens up a way to do millimeter wave drilling. Millimeter wave drilling, that's essentially lasers, correct? So lasers, it's, it's a form of electromagnetic drilling like lasers are. Lasers uh, have a particular wavelength range. Uh, so, so we're talking about uh, a wavelength in the neighborhood of a micron, uh, which is close to the visible light. You know, what we see and what we call light, it's, it's visible range, and that's in the one micron range. Millimeter waves are in the millimeter wave range, so a thousand times bigger wavelength. But in any other way, they're just electromagnetic waves. And the millimeter waves present us with a very unique opportunity to do things in a very interesting way. Let me use a few analogies. You know, everybody is probably familiar with lasers and fiber optics. You know, most Zoom calls and real-time communications in the world today happen because we humans invented fiber optics. We can transfer lasers over very long distances in a fiber and that allows us to communicate. So now we're going to scale things up. Instead of a micron wavelength, we're going to use a millimeter wavelength. And instead of a fiber optic, we're going to use a waveguide. A waveguide is a cylindrical pipe that looks just like oil and gas pipe. And that's going to be the conduit for these waves. We're going to insert the waves in the hole and we're going to burn the rock. We're going to evaporate the rock with one megawatt of power those vapors get carried away with gas, by gas that we inject. So, so why are we doing all of these? I mean, it's just to keep things simple in the hole. The, the biggest challenge with drilling deeper is that it's a very harsh environment. It's hot, there's high pressure, it's very hard rock. So we find a way, or the Plasma Science Fusion Center at MIT found a way to transfer a lot of energy over a very simple system that allows to keep the in-hole complexity to a minimum and basically get away with drilling and vaporizing these rocks in very, very deep holes. So, so that's the core idea behind millimeter wave drilling. But in many ways, it is like a laser transferring over a fiber optic, except that in this case, it's a millimeter wave transferring over a waveguide. And how proven is this technology? I know it's, uh, you're working on it now, but uh, how far have you gotten? So I, I can say that the physics are well understood and proven in the lab at MIT. I think that's one of the primary roles that MIT had in the early stages of the technology. What does that mean? It means they've taken many, many rock types and they've experimented with those rocks with millimeter waves to drill holes through them. We understand the amount of energy that's required. We understand what the process looks like. We understand what that process, how that process scales as we go deeper. It, as a company, we've taken that out of the MIT lab and into a national lab. So now we're working with a 10 times more powerful millimeter wave source to make it go deeper, faster, but still in the lab. We're still not drilling in the ground. We will be drilling in the ground by the end of 2022, though, in the lab. So, so we've taken it out of the MIT lab into a national lab. And over the next three years, as we go into 2023 and 24, we start to take it into the field. So we're building systems that are field deployable and will allow us to drill in the ground under real geological and operational conditions. That means going out somewhere, not in a lab, and drilling a hole anywhere from 100 meters to 1,000 meters. 
You know, if you look at our website, we talk about 20 kilometers. That's the end goal. But there's plenty of business that opens up even at the 100 to 1,000 meters range of holes. So that's where we start. I mean, obviously, the deeper you go, the hotter it is. And and I think, um, as you mentioned earlier, the energy capacity of getting deeper uh, just exponentially improves. And at that depth and heat, obviously, there's a lot of engineering challenges that that come up. So, I mean, assuming the technology is 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 proven, it's scalable. You get down to the depths that that you're targeting. What other things need to be developed in order to make this commercially viable? So, for example, obviously the the water chemistry at that depth needs to be understood. Casings and cement need to be adapted to resist any type of corrosion or withstand the heat. So what other things do you foresee as needing to come along once you're able to hit those depths with this technology? Yeah, so so that question, I like to frame that question in a very long time scale and not necessarily what's required for the company to be commercially viable. And I, I always like to use a, an analogy, right? The oil and gas industry started you know, more than 150 years ago, and they didn't have directional drillings, they didn't have electronics, they didn't have sensors, and it was quite a viable industry. You know, it provided and powered the very first half of the 20th century, unlike any other energy source. So, so I like to say there's only a few things you need to do for this to start to be commercially viable. And that, to me, is drilling deeper and extracting this heat at economically viable rates. If you can do those two things, you're on to the races. Now, what will the industry require as it improves over the next 10 to 100 years? Well, a lot of human innovation will come to bear on this, but you have to open the door for a large industry. You know, Things that I can immediately think of are what you mentioned, high-temperature cements, high-temperature casings, high-temperature electronics. Those are basic things that will just make a things better. But I don't think you need those to get started. You know, there's plenty of scaling to do with geothermal just by unlocking higher temperatures and by being able to tap the heat rates that you require to repower a power plant, for example, right? So so that's what we intend to do. We, we, we open up that frontier and then the rest is capitalism and human innovation, right? It just comes to meet the opportunity and it creates an industry. But to me, that industry cannot be created until this becomes uh, a very scalable and, and viable business. So that's that's the door we want to open. And at that starting point, I mean, obviously, you said when you get a little bit deeper, you're off to the races. So you don't need a lot of these things, particularly at the deeper levels, to come in to play before it's commercially viable. I know that there's other companies that are working on technologies. You know, once you drill down to the depth, such as Ever, I know they've got the closed loop system that they're working on as well. So do you see that other technologies are currently out there that once you kind of get to some of those target depths where it's economically viable, which I think once you hit 150 degrees Celsius, it kind of exponentially goes up from there in terms of the heat efficiency. But what else are you seeing out there to help with the development and progress of geothermal? Yeah, from a technical point of view, so it's the widespread... um, supply of high temperature materials right it could be it could be special alloys we we have them as humans right if you think about it we we have power plants and they heat steam and they make steam you know very hot steam to run a turbine and make electricity so it's not that we don't have these materials we have them available to us it's just that they don't exceed exist at the scale that's required to put terawatts into the grid it's the same challenge that wind and solar are facing, right? The scale-up of, of, of things and infrastructure deployment is something that, that is, is going to be important. So that, that's one. Um, another, another one from a technological point of view has to do with the subsurface imaging, right? A lot of the companies in the space are improving a geothermal place by going into new, new land, new territory, by going with closed loops or by going with uh, fractures, uh, and, and all of that is going to bring capacity as an industry to understand the subsurface better. So I think all of those things will help as well. Um, from a non-technological point of view, there's always regulation. Right? Regulation, I, I don't think regulation is problematic. It just needs to happen. If you think about it, oil and gas has much more expedited regulation than geothermal, which, which is kind of 
silly or interesting, I should say, because it's more benign. Geothermal is more benign. So why, why can oil and gas operate much faster on a larger scale? Well, it's because regulation has, has, has met that challenge. And I think if we do the same with geothermal, I think we're going to start to make a lot of progress. We don't have some of the issues other renewables have, you know, scale up of workforces. You know, the oil and gas industry is 3 million plus strong globally, so we can deploy those. The fossil thermal generation industry power plants, it's 10,000 strong worldwide, right? We can repower that stuff uh, within months, you know, every power plant within months by drilling a geothermal field around it. So, so that, that, those are huge advantages of doing geothermal like this. But, but in terms of, of scaling, I think a lot of what those companies are doing, Evor, Fervo, Sage, and many, many others, you know, they're just warming up the, the playing field for what geothermal can actually deliver. It's interesting on the regulatory front that it's, it's more challenging right now on the geothermal side uh, from a drilling standpoint. What do you think needs to happen on that? Just kind of line it up with the current process for oil and gas to make it easier? Does this need to be something in, in some bills that get passed here in the near term that are energy transition focused? What what would you like to see happen on, on that side? So if we oversimplify and try to do a catch-all way to do this, treat it as oil and gas. Right? If you can do that, you move the needle 80% of the way there. Drilling permits, field development permits, if they happen at the speed of oil and gas, then geothermal would be at a very different point. Now, more, more specifically, because really the purpose is not to just copy and paste regulation, but to actually improve upon regulation, I think geothermal comes in many flavors, and they all require different levels of regulation. You know, closed-loop systems don't frack, for example, and certainly regulation for that has to be different than for systems that frack. A sedimentary basin geothermal has the potential to tap into fluids that are connected to aquifers. Certainly that has to have a different regulation than super hot rock, which goes into the basement and has zero connectivity to aquifers above. So I think when you open it up, you start to see flavors that will require the right level of regulation. But, but if you want to start and get a lot of progress done, start to treat it as oil and gas, especially for permitting and development purposes. That will go a very long way to expediting how geothermal is done. It seems like with a lot of the renewable technologies that a lot of information needs to be out there, right? Because I mean, you mentioned the closed loop does not, does not frack. And I think a lot of people will associate any type of drilling with, with fracking or something that is, is not beneficial for the environment. So it's just one of those kind of PR campaigns along with the likes of wind and solar that, uh, that the public needs to better understand. That, that is correct. And, and I think part of that PR campaign is to understand that humans will have an impact on the environment no matter what we do, right? So, so it, it's really not a question of what has an impact and what doesn't. Is what is the set of impacts when you look at a full a system that are the most agreeable to, right? We need to procure our energy. And we know that's going to have an impact no matter which way we choose, whether it's solar, whether it's wind, whether it's nuclear, whether it's hydroelectric, whether it's a geothermal, it doesn't matter what it is. It's going to have an impact. But when you look, when you zoom out at what the set of impacts are, there are many interesting things that arise that will help us understand uh, in which situations some are better than others and why, right? But there will be an impact every single time because we are utilizing resources from, from, from nature. What I also find interesting, kind of looking at the cost structure, is the the cost efficiencies of geothermal. Because obviously with uh, building a new coal plant, it's about $2,500 per kilowatt. Uh, combined cycle is about 1000 But with this technology, you can actually go onto an existing plant and, and drill the wells to the appropriate depth and generate the steam to power the exact same turbines connected to the exact same grid. In, in a pretty efficient manner. Yeah, I think that's one of the most interesting go-to-market strategies for us. You know, we, we want to do geothermal at the 300 to 500 degrees Celsius precisely for that reason, because that steam quality is in the sweet spot of the steam quality that most power plants use throughout the world. So you basically leverage decades of infrastructure deployment throughout the world. And, and I think that, that that's important. The energy transition 
uh, requires urgency. And if we're going to flip terawatts from dirty to clean or from fossil to clean, reusing is going to be a big part of the equation. It's actually a big part of the sustainability equation. So, so yes, absolutely. You know, I, I, I would love nothing more than to repower every single power plant in the world that uses coal or gas. The amount of energy that, that geothermal can produce is, you know, I was reading a recent article that said that there's enough there to power the United States for 8,500 years, uh, assuming you can get down to the correct depth and the technology is there. And, and that's just a tremendous amount of energy that is consistently uh, renewable and also flexible, right? I mean, with when compared to wind and solar, uh, it, it generates a nice base load that can be turned on very quickly at the necessary times. That is correct. Yeah, it's, it is truly base load because it's not energy that's flowing and that you're catching as it comes to you, like wind and solar are. It is energy that's stored and you are extracting as you need. So it actually has its built-in storage, not unlike fossil, you know, a molecule of hydrocarbons, a have storage capacity. That's why we burn them to, to produce energy. So, so I think that's, that's important. I, I think it's the only renewable that has a built-in storage. You know, it doesn't really need anything else to store because it's already stored. And it is, it is truly renewable when you look at a global scale, right? Um, it, it is massive. It is massive. You know, so for all practical resource purposes, we're going to run out of solar energy from the sun before we run out of geothermal, right? So in other words, the sun will stop shining before the earth loses all its remnant heat, right? So, so it, it is massive. It is infinite for all intents and purposes, and, and, and it, it is there to be tapped, and, and we can power civilization with this. And another point you just brought up that's pretty interesting is also the no need for batteries, right? Because as we look at wind and solar, uh, I've, I've always mentioned supply chain issues. Right, so the metals and materials that are needed not only for for windmills and solar panels, but also appropriate battery storage. This essentially takes a lot of that off the table, right? I mean, assuming you've got the materials for the drilling and and everything there, but just in terms of the constant flow of of heat and electricity, you you, you don't really need massive supply chain adjustments, especially if you do geothermal at deep, deep and hot, right? Like we're trying to do. And there's there's a very interesting thing that is behind this. It's power density, right? So the, the concept of power density is quite important. You know, it is the first time in the history of our civilization, as far as we can tell, that we're proposing to move forward with an energy system that has a lower power density than the one before. You know, it's never worked like that. Civilization has always moved forward when we come up with a higher power density resource. So, so I don't think that's the way forward. I, I think we need to do more with less, not more with much, much more. <laughs> that's not sustainable. So, so when you think about power density, there's three things that come to mind. You mentioned one, the material intensity per unit of energy. How many tons of copper, cobalt, rare earths, et cetera, et cetera, does it take per unit of energy produced? That's material intensity. The second one is land intensity. How many acres of land does it take per unit of energy? The third one is labor intensity. How many man hours does it take per unit of energy? And when you look at all of those things and you are designing at the terawatt level, then you realize that these intensities are actually going to be the things that will stop things like wind and solar from growing to meet the full challenge because the land, the opportunity cost of land, the opportunity cost of materials, and the opportunity cost of labor will be just too large to, to agree to if you had a better option. If you had something like fusion or deep geothermal, why would you do those at terawatt scale when they, you, you're going to have to use a lot more land and a lot more material and a lot more labor? You know, it, doesn't, it goes against all economic sense. Yeah, the land part is also a big deal. I mean, you, you don't have solar farms or large windmills. But a lot of that also has to do with the how deep you can go in the heat, right? Because, you know, 200 degrees Celsius uh, heat, you'd need maybe 30 kilometers of leases for, uh, I guess, 120 megawatts of generation. Whereas if you're at 400 degrees Celsius, that land requirement actually reduces to about one kilometer. So your technology about going deeper to extract at the higher at the hotter level levels is actually much more efficient from a land standpoint. 
That is correct. Yeah, they all go hand in hand. It's much more efficient from a land point of view, much more efficient from a material point of view, and from a labor point of view. And and it matters. At terawatt scale, it matters, actually. The externalities are very, very large. I, I, I see too many reports saying that if we you know, put a solar farm the size of, pick your state, Rhode Island, Connecticut, one of the smaller ones, in the Sahara Desert, we could power the United States. That's that's true, but but we're not going to do that. You know, the energy security of that is zero. Uh, and how do you run that energy from there to here? And how do you clean those cells, right? So, so I think for, for all practical purposes, we need the energy close to where we need the energy that's going to also go in favor of geothermal in a very, very big way because it's everywhere. So, you know, in my mind, you know, we, we got to think beyond the next 10, even 30 years. I know there's a lot of urgency and I, I advocate fully for doing everything we can to scale wind, solar and batteries. But we got to think beyond that. You know, as a species, we don't, you know, we don't design cities for the next 25 years. We design them for the next 100 so, so we should be doing the same with our energy system. We should be looking for the solutions that will power civilization through the 2100s and beyond. So, so we need to look for high power density. And, and sure, we need the, the ones we have right now, but we need to work on this stuff because this is the stuff that's going to meet the challenge in the 2030s, 40s, 50s and beyond. Yeah, I agree with you completely. I've always said the energy transition is a journey. And it's nice to hear you talk about, okay, we, we can't just focus only on meeting standards that are set out in the next 10, 15, 20 years. We need to be looking long term for the energy needs. And what I like about geothermals, like I mentioned earlier, is just it is a constant renewable source of energy. And th there's a lot of benefits to it as long as these technological advancements can, can continue. The question I have is... I, for many years, there have been companies that have been starting up to, to try to exploit the geothermal energy source. Uh, why now? What are you seeing different, uh, not only in, okay, your, your technology is, is more advanced than maybe uh, what could be developed five, ten years ago, but what else are you seeing that is helping propel the talk about geothermal? Because I think historically it's one that has been a little bit overlooked, not talked about much. What's changed? There is an energy transition that's being taken seriously. I think that is the biggest change. I think if we were not taking energy transition seriously, there's no point in doing this. It's, it's just hard. It's very hard. And interestingly, the industry that's in the best position to push the agenda on something like this, geothermal, it's the oil and gas industry. So if there's no energy transition, it means business as usual is perfectly fine for them. So they're not going to engage. I've been on the other side of the table looking at geothermal and scratching my head and say, yeah, I get it, but why would you do this, right? If I can do an oil and gas development and be a lot more profitable with less risk, why would I ever do geothermal? And the answer can only be because we have to decarbonize. So to the extent that continues to be true and we are serious about that, then that's the reason why now makes sense. And it makes sense at a very, very large scale. And it's something, to your point, that would get broad-based support, right? Because they're, you're using the existing technology that's been developed from oil and gas drilling companies. So that's, that's jobs that can just move over from drilling for oil and gas to drilling to uh, geothermal depths. But that's a transfer of jobs that people can easily transition to, get their support, but also capitalize on the technological expertise that they've been developing for how many years and it's it's getting that broad-based support that i've talked about that you don't want to lose but the fact that you're kind of going hand in hand with oil and gas on this type of development is truly a positive you know across separate aisles yeah yeah i like to make the analogy that you know i love fusion <laughs> i think we need to become a fusion civilization but even if fusion worked this afternoon the people that are going to scale this to terawatts haven't been born right so that matters too we gotta have the workforces the asset base, it's not just the workforce, the asset base, how many drilling rigs are out there in the world? The supply chain base and the regulatory base, all of those things already exist and we can leverage at the terawatt scale, which is what the oil and gas industry has been doing for decades. Um, so we, we got to do that. It's, it's too good of an opportunity to ignore and, and, and we're getting support in that industry. You know, one of our most recent partners uh, is one of the largest drilling companies in the world. You know, they start to see that this is going to be an important thing for them to do. And they're, they're playing the long-term game. They're not playing the short-term game of how do I make a profit, but how do I really reinvent my business?
Yeah, it's having a partner like that. I mean, it's one of those things that it presents a growth opportunity for these companies that have been so heavily weighted towards oil and gas as taking part in the energy transition, which I've seen come about over the last, call it two to three years, where they've not looked at the energy transition as a fad and now looking, okay, I'm I'm ready to allocate resources to this uh, because I want to be a piece of it because I see the momentum building. Yeah. Yeah. And, and because they have to, I mean, if you believe that the energy transition will happen, you have to do it. If you don't do it, you're signing up for your own debt. You know, the end industries will die and they have died in the past. So you, you better get onto it. Otherwise you, you're not going to exist too far into the future uh, un- unless you believe that energy transition is not going to happen. Right. But I, I think energy transition has to happen. Yeah, I mean, you want to end up uh, like Netflix and not Blockbuster, right? <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Exactly right. Always use that analogy. <laughs> what uh, What other maybe competing technologies are you seeing out there that are being developed to achieve the depths that you were looking at? So the beauty of this is that it's not binary. This is not 20 kilometers or nothing. This is, hey, today we can drill up to uh, 200, 250 degrees C by pulling a few tricks, maybe a little bit more in a few places. So you can start pushing from that. You can start going a little bit deeper and a little bit hotter. And every time you do that, geothermal just gets more and more and more attractive. There's plenty of companies in that space. You know, the ones we mentioned before are doing that. But there's also companies focused on drilling only, companies like GA Drilling in Europe, Companies like Hypersciences in the U.S., there's several hammer drilling companies. I know at least of five to ten that are trying different variations of a hammer drill. Foro Energy had worked on lasers drilling in the past, and they continue to do that for other uses. So, so any of those technologies will have a chance of increasing the envelope, the drill envelope of geothermal, and that's just going to help geothermal become better and better and better. Now, why why does Quest talk about 20? Because we believe 20 is what the world actually needs to really transition. That's where the 20 is coming from. But 10 is pretty good too. 10 kilometers is pretty good. You can actually cover 50% of humanity with geothermal at that depth. And five is still pretty good too, right? So there's a lot of things you can do. And many of these companies, to the extent they're successful, they will open up markets. They will open up opportunities for geothermal. So I like them all to succeed. I don't see anybody talking about 20 kilometers. Uh, I think we're the only ones as far as I know, but it doesn't mean we start with 20 kilometers or we're not successful. It means that we think that's what we need to design for. And we think millimeter wave drilling can actually do that. Because I guess at 20, you're not really location dependent at that point, right? Getting to 20 means that you can actually tap into the source anywhere in the world. You can repower a power plant no matter where that power plant is in the world. And you can actually develop greenfield. You can actually build power plants anywhere in the world. You, you basically cover more than 95% of civilization at that point. So, so yeah, I think 20 is an important number. And with the millimeter wave drilling, do you see any challenges after getting to the depth, to the, to the extent there's horizontal drilling required? at that point as well? Or is it essentially the same technology that can overcome anything that you encounter as it regards to horizontal drilling? We like to start vertical because it's easier and because it's good enough, right? So horizontal drilling is something that is sophisticated and we can do eventually, right? We know that the physics allow for that. But again, I use the analogy of the beginning of the oil industry. There was no horizontal drilling uh, for more than 100 years before it came about and it made a lot of things much better. So I think by drilling vertically and by getting into these hotter resources, geothermal gets a lot better in many, many, many ways. Horizontal drilling is just icing on the cake. If you can do that, you can start doing wonderful things, you know, where, where you have LCOEs of one cent per kilowatt hour, no matter where you are, but, but you don't need to start there. There's always challenges, you know, you don't know what you don't know. So, so we understand that subsurface drilling is always going to be a difficult and challenging thing to do, but we understand that this is an important thing to do, uh, a necessity, if you would, investors are willing to, to go for that. 
things like rig sizes, you know, can conventional drilling rigs uh, support the weight of a 20-kilometer drill string? Well, it depends how big that drill string is, but the answer could be no. Not many of them can, but some can. What about heat extraction rates? You know, do they change as you go deeper and deeper and deeper? Do they get better? Do they get worse because you lose heat on the way up? Do you need to insulate the casing to prevent heat loss in the upper sections? All of those things will become relevant and important as you go deeper and deeper and deeper. But in the end, to me, you need to be viable at the very basic level. And then everything from that level onwards, it's improvement, 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 improvement. Right. I mean, to your point, you don't know what you don't know. Uh, so when you're down at that depth, what, what do you need to do as it relates to the materials and the extraction? Things will come to light that will be developed to improve that and continue the, the advancement of the overall geothermal technology. Correct. And, and you will have already an established business base in a frontier much, much shallower than that, right? So yes, you have to build a business that's profitable to be able to crack these problems as you go deeper and deeper and deeper. Same as every other business. You know, you don't start with the end result. You start with a result that's good enough and commercially viable, and then you keep pushing. The Interchange is brought to you by the Yale Program at Financing and Deploying Clean Energy, training working professionals to accelerate the deployment of clean energy worldwide. According to the IPCC, we need an order of magnitude increase in investments in clean energy to meet the goals of the Paris Accord. Rising to this challenge means deploying human capacity in the field at a pace and scale never before experienced, developing the skills, instinct, and abilities of clean energy professionals like you, already hard at work to accelerate the transition to a clean economy. With this program, Yale University draws on its deep expertise, marrying academic rigor with practical skills and enabling organizations across the sector to invest in people who want to meet the climate change challenge with urgency. This cross-sectoral approach and interdisciplinary lens fosters an informed workforce and powerful knowledge networks, and most importantly, it builds a common language to better understand the interplay of policy, finance, and technologies that support the growth of the clean energy sector. To connect with Yale expertise right from your laptop, grow your professional network, and deepen your impact, visit yalecleanenergy.info interchange and apply before March 13, 2022. You, know, you mentioned earlier, obviously, a partner of Quay's from the oil and gas side. How have you seen the capital raising environment? particularly as it's changed over the past couple of years for companies such as yourselves. Have you seen it a lot more open? Are you being approached more by potential investors rather than you know having to beat on everybody's door? But just the overall investment climate, how have you seen that develop over the past couple of years, particularly with a company like Waze? It's improved significantly in the last six months or so. I don't know what happened. I, I have to say maybe it's COP26, maybe it's a combination of the challenge and the enormity of, of, of the energy transition. But these companies are always hard to raise for. So, you know, when I think about a fundraise, I always think about nine months to a year. There's no such thing as closing one of these companies' uh, financings in three months. It's impossible. There's too much diligence. There's too much things that investors should and need to know. But something happened in the last six months that all of a sudden I was getting a lot more incoming, a lot more, you know, a lot more funds uh, changing their thesis slightly and saying, okay, energy transition is much bigger than we thought, and we're going to have to invest in geothermal, and the type of geothermal that you're talking about is going to be very, very important. So, so that, that's changed. We, we, we closed, um, I will not disclose it today because this is going to go on air before we go publicly, but we recently closed our Series A. It's going to be announced in February. But if I think about that Series A back two years ago, it would have been amazing, almost impossible, right? Almost like the, the, the recent financing of, of one of the fusion companies raising more than a billion dollars, right? So, so it is changed. And I think it's because people understand, investors understand that the opportunity, the challenge is much larger and the opportunity is correspondingly much larger. We're, we're talking about trillion dollar companies in the making, right? So, so that's the opportunity that's in front of the world. I think the risk reward balance has shifted as well, because before it was very risky for funds to come in, particularly for a unproven technology, but it's more now they're seeing the long-term nature of it, which is a lot of these funds need to see the long-term viability. And I think when you look at the energy transition, that's 
checkbox checkbox number one, but then you also look at something like geothermal, and, and you're talking about look, you're looking a hundred years down the road with this type of technology that's clearly long-term for these investors. And so being able to see that viability going forward is something that I think is also changing the way investors are looking at the space. That long-term nature of it has really changed over the past two years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and we don't pitch a hundred year business cases. Uh, I don't think capitalism is ready for that. We pitch 10-year business cases, right? 10 to 20-year business cases. And some funds align with that, actually. And it's the upside. So it's, it's, it's important to reiterate the magnitude of the upside uh, on success. Now, the other thing that's interesting is what is the flip side? What is the risk facing us on the other side, on the flip side? Well, we don't succeed with energy transition. Might as well have nothing, zero. I mean, so, so it's all or nothing. I mean, failing the energy transition is failing civilization, right? So so I, I think that starts to play a role in the thinking as well. This is not just option. This is not just, hey, maybe we, we can do this or, or not do this. No, this is if we don't do this or something like this, and if something like this doesn't succeed, we might as well throw our funds away because the world is just going to be in a very different state. You know? And you see it. You see it with, with climate events. You know? it, it destroys billions to trillions of dollars of, of, of GDP. Because, because of the of the climate impacts. So I think that's also playing, and it's going to increasingly play more and more and more because I don't think 2023 and 24 and 25 are going to be better than 22, 21, and 20. It's just going to continue to go in the wrong direction. Yeah, I think the, the global effort by all the governments being involved is also something that they're not going to let the energy transition fail. Uh, I mean, it's possible that you don't hit the targets that have been laid out, but in terms of a complete failure, I don't think the governments are going to to allow that to happen. So you've got that safety net, if you will, as well, which also provides the investors the the comfort that it's not going away. It's not something that's going to be you know swept under the rug at any time soon. And in terms of the the types of investors, uh, are you seeing banks? playing much of a role yet, or is it really more just kind of the, the VC funds and pension funds that are continuing to provide this type of financing? I think it's venture and strategic. So corporate venture and venture. Um, banks are playing a role um, in the venture debt side of things, right? So at some point, a company like Quays becomes hungry for capital assets that are actually marketable and they, they have a very strong role to play there. You know, I much rather finance that with debt than with equity and extend my runway. So that's where banks come into play and, and, and they're doing a good job there. I think venture and, and mission oriented venture is it's going to continue to play the biggest role. Government as well, it moves a little bit slower, but we have funding from government and I think it plays an important role. And core a strategic venture. Uh, it's it's you know these businesses will realize that they need to they need to be close to these technology developments as part of their ten year plan. Private equity is interesting. I've seen more and more private equity moving closer and closer to us. I wasn't looking in the private equity direction, but they're starting to approach and say, okay, yeah, maybe we do something here. Maybe we go earlier because the way they're seeing it is if you succeed. The growth path is through them. How do we do these massive infrastructure deployment projects through private equity for the most part initially and then through private equity and debt? So, so they start to get more comfortable with getting closer to early stage uh, venture, uh, early stage technology companies that still have some technological risks in them. Yeah, I've seen a lot of interest in the technology surrounding the energy transition because I think everybody's looking at that as the fundamental base as we hit these targets. And like you said, some of this is going to be developed after we, we hit you know step one and step two. But I think the overarching view is that technology is driving the energy transition, whether it's efficient solar panels or this type of, of drilling technology to allow for full extraction of the geothermal benefits that we have on this planet. And there's a lot more focus on it. And I think you're seeing people get focused more on the technology surrounding it, which is only going to improve as time goes on with additional investment opportunities uh, for companies like Quaze. Geothermal, wind, solar, they're all very complementary to each other. And I think it just continues to advance the full adoption of renewable sources. When you talk about these partnerships and you look 
at the five, 10 years down the road, the, the drilling technology is proven and, and deployable. How do you see this being rolled out? Is it something that you would work with those partnerships at existing plants uh, to drill the geothermal wells, or would you anticipate more greenfield uh, plants initially and then, and then continue on from there? How would you see the, the path going? So, so business opportunities are business opportunities, and whenever they arise and they make sense, you pursue them, right? But if, if I have a say into what I think needs to happen, is let me start with the end point first. So in the fullness of time, Quase is an energy company. It means that it sells kilowatt hours out of a power plant that it owns and operates, or it sells BTUs of steam out of a geothermal field that it owns and operates. And it sells those BTUs of steam into a district heating, industrial heating, agricultural heating, or a power plant, right? That's in the fullness of time. Now, those, those are power project developments. Those are $100 million plus projects because you're developing 100 megawatt plus power assets. The play there is one not unlike what the oil and gas majors were early in the 20th century. You know, the, the role was to secure the land, the permitting, and the contracting base to actually go and develop a field and produce energy and pipe that energy into the world. But but you don't start there, right? So I think where we start is by pulling the technology into the market, pushing the technology into the market, into places where we know we have a value proposition. So starting from today, we believe the first viable commercial use of the technology is in mining exploration, not geothermal. It's let's drill very small laparoscopic holes that you know, sink, you know, one inch, two inch diameter, something almost impossible to do mechanically. And you sink them into the ground 100 meters to 1,000 meters. And then you grid the terrain and you get a 3D ore body representation because you can do depth correlated real-time elemental composition analysis. And you do it at the price point of mining. So we, we're pursuing that. We will push our technology into that space and seek licensing opportunities. But from there, as you capitalize the company, you probably start working with our strategic partner in drilling, and we start uh, developing, joint venturing into developing and drilling these assets, right? We have revenue sharing of or royalties in the simplest form of our technology into drilling for geothermal assets. But as you capitalize the company, then you move up into the geothermal field development. At that point, you are becoming the contractor of record for the field development. You use your technology as a differentiator from everybody else. And then you simply call in the rest of the industry to do the things that you don't want to do yourself. There's plenty of that. That's where the oil and gas industry starts to come in play into place very, very widely. And then you keep going. Uh, I, I don't want Quays to be a drilling company. I don't want it to be a licensing company. I don't think that's what the investors are betting on because the capital intensity is so high. You have no option but to be an energy company. You have to aim to be a trillion dollar company. And you can, if you play the capitalization right and the investment partnerships right. And obviously the cost benefit for those companies is that they're getting a renewable, clean source of steam and the feedstock that they would alternatively get from coal or natural gas that they continue to have to replenish. I mean, the source is there and it's, it, like I said, clean and constantly flowing. You give them a license to life. You know, in many places, they are threatened to be shut down. They're going to mothballed. Not in all places. There's going to be plenty of coal plants coming online, uh, for better or worse, right? So, so you give them a social license and, and a second lease on life for themselves. And, and you decarbonize them. You also uh, remove the, the price volatility associated with hydrocarbons, especially in a world that's swinging like we are. The more renewables penetrate, the more volatile fossil becomes because the market is more uncertain for them. So those swings and volatility, and you can see gas, gas has astronomical prices these days, th th that risk is going to be reduced. And it's going to also reduce the carbon tax um, exposure, right? If carbon tax becomes a strong thing in some jurisdictions, you know, you, you got to get away from that. Instead, you got to go into a carbon credit. So really, it's it's win, 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 win from every single side. If you can do this, there's no reason why these plants shouldn't be doing it. The only reason they shouldn't be doing it is if they believe fossil industry, the fossil industry is going to continue business as usual. But if that's not the case, this is a no-brainer. Yeah, and flowing that through, I mean, eliminating the variable costs associated with the feedstock, as well as any carbon tax issues, that obviously feeds directly into the consumer. 
I mean, this, this conversation has been extremely enlightening and I really appreciate you coming on the show. What's next for Quaze and how can we keep up with your progress? So we just closed our series A. I think we have a good, um, good capital to do what we're trying to, we're trying to do for the next three years, which is to take the technology out of the lab and into the field. We're going to be developing two field deployable machines. One is targeted towards the mining exploration use case. The other one is targeted to the, towards the geothermal use case. So that's going to be the bulk of the work, getting it into the world and showing that it can actually operate as we believe it can. That's not commercial work. You know, We're not talking about revenue generation. We're not talking about commercialization of the technology. That comes after. But that's what we're going to be doing. There's going to be plenty, you know, every opportunity we have to share with the world where we are, the good and the, and the bad. You know, to me, it's, it's, it's quite important to share the difficult stuff, to send the message that these companies are hard, but we still need to continue to pursue them. It, it's also going to be shared. I think that that's just on principle important to me, that the world understands that this is not just, you know, all rosy and, and boom, 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 you got it, because then it wouldn't be tough tech. It's, this is hard stuff. So we're going to be we're going to be going out and saying those things and partnerships. Partnerships are going to be very important. I think we're going to be quite, quite open about working with power plants. You know, I think I think sharing the business cases, sharing the financial models, I think it's going to be important because I want nothing more than people to see what's behind in the assumptions and then understand why this is so incredibly important to do and, and get the support that we need. So we'll be very outspoken. We won't be quiet. We won't be operating in sleuth mode. We, we will be sharing quite a bit, the good, the bad, and, and the amazing as, as, as we go forward. Yeah, well, I'm glad to hear that because the, the PR and marketing campaign is something that's critical to the energy transition and will only help things going forward. Uh, so I'm glad to hear that you're going to be continuing to be vocal on what Quaze is up to and on the progress and, and why it needs to be done. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate again uh, the time. It, it's been a very, very fascinating discussion for me. And I really look forward to seeing how Quaze progresses with the technology and looking forward to more good things to come. Thank you, David. Thanks to the Interchange team. Really appreciate the opportunity. And you can find us at www.quaze.energy. And you can always write me. I'll try to respond. Thanks. This has been the Interchange Recharge. I'm David Banmiller. Thanks for listening. Join us in a couple of weeks when we shine the light on another innovative company making strides in the energy transition.